Today on Always Evolving, I have a guest that I saw on television. I saw him on CBS News. His name is Bernard Kinsey. And he was selected to spearhead the rebuilding of LA by then Mayor Tom Bradley. And so I wanted to get his wisdom. And also he too is a huge fan of art. He has one of the biggest collections of African-American art. Welcome, Bernard. Well, thank you so much, uh, Coach Mike. I'm really looking forward to it. And our family, we're really looking forward to sharing some thoughts with you today. Great. So what, what, um, give everyone a little bit of a history on, on how you ended up uh, spearheading kind of uh, some direction after. Well, okay. Let, let, let's go, let's go with it this way. Uh, before we talk about the 1992 LA riots or unrest, you have to use both because it depends on what side of the street you were on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Shirley and I live our lives on two simple principles. To whom much is given, much is required, and a life of no regrets. We've been married uh, for 53 years, left uh, Tallahassee. We graduated from Florida a and University, a black college, and moved west. And we were part of the Great Migration, and we didn't even know it. But we were trying to get away from a lot of the things that were bad about the South uh, right. in the 60s. Uh, and interesting for your your uh, your audience, uh, my wife Shirley at 17 came to Florida A&M and got arrested within the first two weeks uh, of her enrollment. So she was the kind of young lady I immediately uh, resonated with because she's a someone of conscience. And people that look back in the 60s, uh, this has been a constant struggle all the way back to the founding of this country. So I wanted to try and get uh, that piece out. And for your audience, what we have tried to do uh, over our our marriage is, is be responsible. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is, uh, God grant me a gift to give it to someone else that needs it more than me. And the idea that we've been blessed immeasurably is one of the things that we always take. So uh, we have, and I mentioned earlier about having a, li- a life of uh, uh, many lanes and uh, many lives. Uh, And because of how we managed our lives, I think we were prepared for the, this big uh, uh, job, you know, Mm -hmm. responsibility in 1992. So I'll tell you how it happened though. So the 29th and 30th of April, uh, we had uh, $2 billion worth of loss here in LA. 54 lives were, were uh, taken uh, and uh, over 2,000 stores, most of them Korean stores. And it really was this hostility uh, from the Rodney King beating and the uh, four police officers being acquitted. Uh, But it also was coming out of 1965 with the Watts riot, which nothing really happened after that. Most of the buildings uh, had not been rebuilt, a lot of vacant land, so forth and so on. So what you're seeing in in uh, 2020 is really this continuum that's really started, you know, uh, three, four hundred years ago. As early as 1711, black people in New York were beginning to push back on slavery. So, mm-hmm. and by the way, let me just jump in. How absolutely crazy. I mean, I, I watched one of your videos. I think you said in 1832, uh, a slave owner bought another black man for $500. Right. 
It's so crazy that 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 somehow that is um, that that even existed. Well, this country was founded on slavery. Almost every we have a saying: uh, "They're the stories that made America, and they're the stories that America made up." Mm. And the problem that we have is there have been so many myths promulgated by our history books. Uh, Khalil and I and Shirley, we, the Kinsey Collection. Khalil's you know, your son. Yeah, Khalil is our son. And uh, if you go on our website, thekinseycollection.com, we have a, uh, a, a 230-page book that uh, is in its fifth edition. We just published the second book. So what we are trying to do is to tell the story of the African-American experience of achievement and accomplishment. And everything that we've been able to do starting in 1595, we have a document from 1595 of an African-American girl being baptized in in, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, uh, which goes against some of the stories that we only came in 1619, we were only enslaved, so forth and so on. So this this continuum, and we, we say this, you cannot understand uh, the Civil War without understanding slavery, and you cannot understand civil rights without understanding Jim Crow. Now, let me let me break it down, and we'll get get into 1992 and 2020. The reality is that slavery was everything about America that led up to the Civil War, and even uh, from there, we we were given our freedom in 1865, but we were never given equality. So. Jim Crow came in and Jim Crow was this uh, really almost more pernicious than slavery because black folks, all of the rights of uh, freedom and voting and uh, normal passage in this country were taken away. For instance, 1793, George Washington signed a bill that basically deputized white civilians to be able to go and hunt black people that had run away from their plantation. Now, we don't use the word plantation. Every time you hear the word plantation, strike it out and say prison, because that's where black people live for the first two, three hundred years in this country. We lived in prisons. We lived and died on that acreage. So what we are trying to do is to tell this story of accomplishment and achievement. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. You know, the Kinsey Collection is this uh, collection of art and history that's traveled the world. And the piece that you're talking about is a piece from 1832. And let me just give it to you this way. A friend of mine, a white guy, Wally, he was uh, uh, in Tallahassee. And he called me, he said, Bernard, I found this document. He said, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. And I immediately knew what it was. He said, I said, send it to me. Well, the next day I get it in FedEx. I open it up and I pull it out. And here's a bill of sale on a brother, 18 years old in Alabama, being sold for $500. Mm. And I, I, I can remember how I felt then as I feel now. It shook me to the core 
And I made up my mind right then, I wanted to know how did black folks get into this predicament in America? And from that piece, I went on this, I mean, for the last 40 years, read, I read two hours a night by black folks and investment. Those are the two things, because in this country, you gotta know about your history and you better have enough money to be able to live above the poverty line. So that, that's what has just propelled us. And in trying to answer the question of how did we get in this predicament, it began to, 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 to lay out the story of slavery and how it's been so integrated into American life. I'll give you an example. John Brown was the largest slaver. That's what you call them, slavers, okay? Not businessmen. Mm-hmm. The largest slaver in the 18th century, he brought over 100,000 Africans, stole, kidnapped to America. He finds, founds Brown University. So Brown University was founded on what? Slave money. Um, Charles Tiffany, his dad was a slave merchant in Montgomery, sent him $500 to open a store on Broadway. That later becomes Tiffany, Charles Tiffany. I can go on and on and on. Matter of fact, all of uh, uh, Wall Street was essentially built by by black folk. Lafayette Square, which our president, you know, uh, moved all of the peaceful demonstrators out, that was a slave market in Washington. The the capital was built by black folks, enslaved black folks. Why don't you think that's taught? Like, why don't you think we learned this? Well, part of it is it did it didn't help uh, slave holders, Jim Crow, and the privileged class of today to keep their uh, people ignorant about how they got where they got. You follow me? I mean, white people are, are ashamed of this story when it's really laid out. And what we say, you shouldn't be ashamed of it. Embrace it and go because we know white history. You don't know black history. So Khalil will tell you, if if we're trying to have a relationship and I respect you and you don't respect me, we're never going to have a relationship. And that's where we are in America today. White America does not respect black America. And that's is why- Is that all white people? Is there like, is it the majority of white people? Like what's the cut? Of- well, let, let's say it this way. I, I understand what you're saying. And I can nuance that and say that most white people are like that, if, you, if, that, if that works. But the fact of the matter, they're almost all white people at the core. The only way the athletes and celebrities and all of that get away is because they're who they are. Once they take that those titles off, they become just like anybody else, that they can be driving down the car and they have no agency. So let's talk about it from that standpoint. Citizenship is something that is valued in the white community. In our community, it's devalued because we don't believe we have the same rights as anyone else. And it's because if you black in America, the chances of something happening to you only because of race is high. I just read a story about a brother in Texas. He didn't dim his headlights. The the Texas Highway Patrol ended up stopping him 28 minutes after he stopped him, the brother is shot to death. Only because he didn't do the headlights. the difference was, if he were white, he would have gotten, please dim your lights. Because he was black, it escalated almost from the beginning. And what you see is this, this notion of agency that is not apparent. So uh, the, the idea of privilege 
in this country is operating all the time. And that's hard for white people to understand because the average white person, he works or she works hard, his family. I mean, it's hard for them too, but they have no idea of the, the deficit that black families have to do just to get to where they are. And that is really part of what this whole notion of uh, Black Lives Matter is. And I'm, I can't believe it's happening in my lifetime that white people are saying Black Lives Matter because they have not mattered. Look here, it was 1968 before a white person was convicted of killing a black person in this country. Mm. 1968. In other words, black life does not have the same value as white life. And I think all white people really know that. So if you see NBA players or NFL players, yes, they are revered as long as they're around and people know who they are. Well, I think, and I think the irony... The irony is you look at how many of these pro football teams have African-American owners or black owners, how many of the basketball teams do. And then I, it's just it's in it's just an odd dynamic because, um, for example, like and this isn't race, but I own a treatment center. One of the businesses okay. I have is a, is a treatment center, dual diagnosis treatment center. So a lot of the people who get into the profession of helping other people in my profession, they like I'm an ex-drug addict, right? So a lot, we, we love it. We love people who have struggled because we're like, okay, you got it. You have, you've, you've suffered, you struggled, you're one of us, come on over. Like we'll embrace you and your story makes you strong. And it's a part of our industry in the mental health industry. But then in athletics, it feels odd because I don't, I, I just, it's such a disconnect to me. It, why would the mid 75% of football players be black and the majority of owners be white? It just seems weird. Like well, that, that's how, that's how the, the system works. Let, let me just say it this way. White, white people talk about meritocracy, but don't practice it. Major Taylor in the 1890s was the, Fastest bicycle rider in the world, a black man from Indianapolis. You never heard of him. You never heard of him because of the myth of absence. And what we try to do is the myth of absence is the that black people are invisibly present in this country. Let me stay with me. And when we say we're invisibly present, that means that we're we're there, but we're just not part of the narrative. We're not part of the picture. We're not part of the process that how America works. Unless it's something like right now when there's race and then you see all these black people on TV. You don't see us on TV for anything else. Okay. Rarely do we see that. I'll I'll stay with what you're saying. So here's what we're trying to say is we know we have agency in this country, but we can't prove it because our history books have wiped us out. So what the Kinsey collection has been doing for the last 15 years, we've been to, 31 cities around the world. I'm really proud of this. 31 cities translated into Chinese and into Spanish. And we've had over 15 million people see this incredible array of art and historical documents dating from 1595. That's what I want your audience to understand. We talk about Black people only from the uh, point of view that they did manual labor with cotton and uh, tobacco and rice, you know? We did a lot more. We had ingenuity. We created things. 
We did all these ceramics, all the silverware, all the wrought iron in Savannah and New Orleans. All of that's done by black people. All of the furniture. Have you ever heard of Thomas Day? Thomas Day from North Carolina, almost single-handedly, he and his family almost built the furniture business in North Carolina. 1841, Milton. Look it up. Google it. Here's a black man that his furniture was so valued that he would carve in his name like a piece of art. Mm. And you know what? 99% of the people in this country don't know it, including the people living off of his, his ingenuity and craftsmanship. Those are just some of the things that we want America to know about our agency as it relates to the contribution we made to this country. And we shouldn't be, the average black person now has about $11,000 net worth versus $110 for whites. We you know, I went, to the, I, went, I went to the doctor um, okay. a few days ago and the street was blocked off in Santa Monica. There was like military there. I was just going to get okay. blood work. It was a Friday. Um, my doctor thought I was going to cancel because the street was blocked off. And mm-hmm. I uh, I walk up and, you know, a young, he must have been like 25 years old or something, stops me and says, uh, where are you going? I said, oh, I have a doctor's appointment. And he said, uh, well, do you have proof of that? <laughs> I'm like, no, I mean, I, I said, look, I'm I'm on television. I, I do. Th- and all of a sudden he went, you're on television. And I said, yeah, he goes, all right, it's cool. Right. Which is wild to me. And I left, I was walking the doctor and in that moment. I thought if I was black, if I was black, you could have got, I, I do not think I would have had the same, uh, unless I was a famous black person. Right. 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 Then right. it could have worked. But if I'm just a, uh, not a guy pulling up who has a big presence and looks super white, that person is going to get, it's going to be more difficult for them. And I, and I didn't catch on. The the great thing about what's going on right now is it actually makes you think differently than before. Well, Mike, before you go to that, that's what I like about what you are doing. Okay. Because let's say it this way. Most white people, would not look at that situation the way you looked at it, mm-hmm. would not have that aha moment, which is really what we want people to have, more aha moments. In other words, what would that have happened had I been black? So, I mean, and, that, and that's why this dialogue is so critical now, because if you've been doing something all your life, you, you have rights that you really don't even know you have rights. Mm-hmm. So you can't, I mean, it's hard for somebody to say, you know, we're not even saying give them up. But just be aware of them and know that, you know, we have a saying privilege is like being born on third base and thinking you hit a triple. Hmm. I think you're right. Like, I'm okay with the discomfort that I could feel being a white male and knowing that I have a bunch of advantages because I'm white. Yeah. But you have to get comfortable with it and realize it is what it is. Like to deny to to suddenly believe that that's not real to me is like. I don't even know how people could think that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we live in the Palisade, which is a very, very oh, uh, yeah. uh, tony little area. And we lived here for 35 years. And, I, you know, I used to be a council general, uh, had diplomatic plates and all of that back in the 90s, uh, early 2000s. So Khalil used to drive our new Lexus. And literally, I mean, without fail, he would get stopped before he could get out of the Palisades because people want to know why are you driving this car? Who are you? So forth and so on. 
For the uh, listeners, the Palisades is like uh, it's like Beverly Hills on the beach. Oh yeah, it's, it's you know. Let, let me let me go go back to your first question. In I was a vice president with Xerox from uh, nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety one. So Xerox back then was like Apple, Google, Microsoft put together. It was a Fortune twenty company. So here's a black man in a major uh, American corporation in 1980. I mean, that's 40 years ago, I'm coming to think of it. So let me tell you about what we did in Xerox and this for your corporate people. In Xerox in 1971, we had less than a thousand black people working for Xerox. That's when I was hired, September 71. And we formed the Xerox Black Employees as a uh, employee group to begin to take uh, uh, action about the lack of black people working for Xerox, so forth. In 20 years, we went from less than 1,000 to over 14,000 black people. When I left Xerox as a vice president in 1991, we had 26 black vice presidents. Okay? You cannot find 26 black vice presidents almost in corporate America now. We have gone backwards. You follow me? We only have 3% of CEOs that are black, less than 5% of the corporate. Why is that? Well, because it's a good old boys club. You might not talk about, you know, uh, the, 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 the jockey syndrome. The jockey syndrome, when you get too good, we change the rules. Black people have done really, really well in this country when they're ruled. That's why we do well in civil service. That's why we do well in the military, because there's strict performance rule and criteria that we can adhere to. And we have some pushback if we don't get it. In corporate America, it's a whole different game. So what we said with the Xerox Black employees, you got your club, we're going to form, form our club. And we did. And that club became the premier, or uh, what they call the employee resource group in the country in terms of changing the conversation because we got the CEO of Xerox, you follow me, to buy into that what was going on in Xerox was not right. So mm -hmm. go ahead to 1992. So I go in to see Peter Uberoff, who I knew from uh, when I ran the Olympics for Xerox in 1984. And the first thing he said, he said, Bernard, uh, we don't want to talk to you about your electric car company I was representing as a consultant. We want to talk to you about coming to work at Rebuild LA. And I said, you got to be kidding. I just left. I just quit a, being vice president. Why don't I want to come work? You know. So he said, let me give you a story. He said that Mayor Bradley called me and told me that you sh I should hire Bernard Kinsey. Long story short, after some deliberation, I decided to do that. And it was really one of the best things I've done. Let me describe what Rebuild LA was. Rebuild LA was a totally private organization, funded privately. And it was based on the principle of three, a three-legged stool, government, community, and business. All along, we've all had the government and community trying to solve the problem. America doesn't work unless business gets involved. And I'll give you a, a classic example. After the, the unrest or the riots of 92, all of the supermarkets were burned. So one of the immediate needs was to replace supermarkets in South Los Angeles. 
we had about 2 million people that would really come into the Palisades or Santa Monica or wherever just to buy groceries. I read an article in the LA Times that Barnes, for the first time, their same store sales in the suburb had declined. I went to Peter and, and he and I were co-chairs. I didn't work for him. He and I were, were equal, but a good guy. And he had the black book. And I said, Peter, do you know Roger Stanglin, the CEO of Barnes? He said, yes. I said, this is our opportunity. Let's call him in and show him where he can put grocery stores. Long story short, we bring Stanglin in and lay it out, show him the, the territory, show him the demographics, show him the economics. On the spot, he does 10 supermarkets, $100 million. We did the same thing with Smart and Finally. They did 12 stores. We did the same thing with Albertson, the same thing with Ralph. So within about a six or eight month period, we took an area that was a food desert and we put 33 supermarkets. And here's the other thing we did with the city. And, and Mayor Garcetti is doing a great job. He's doing the same thing. So we told the supermarkets, we will help you get through building the safety and getting your permitting because it was taking three years for supermarkets to get uh, permits. We cut that down to eight months. You follow me? What it meant was that instead of waiting three years for a supermarket to be built, in eight months it was being built. The next thing we did, we decided that we were going to have Black and Latino contractors, which was unheard of because the bonding requirements on building big buildings. So we went to all of the big contractors and we convinced them that we should have a minority majority consortium. In other words, they would bond these black and Latino contractors and they would then have an opportunity to do it. I mean, that was extraordinary. So here you got 33 supermarkets being built by black and brown contractors, along with every one of these stores, we asked them, we couldn't require that they bring either a black manager or a Latino manager, and then hire from within three miles of their, their uh, stores. All of a sudden, people have jobs. Mm. And that is really the issue in this country. If people are working, you ain't got, I mean, people don't have time to be doing anything but taking care of their family. With Trump saying that Donald Trump saying he's done more for black people than any other president. This what? Is, that's, that's just extraordinary. Donald Trump has, has lied 20 plus thousand times based on the Washington Post uh, uh, article. Uh, when, when people were demonstrating in Lafayette Square, which was a slave market, mm. you got me? It was a I slave. got you. Donald Trump was in the bunker hiding and tweeting. You follow me? I don't want to hear that. I mean, the idea that he has done something, he doesn't even understand black people because the way he talks about us, I've helped them. I've helped the, uh, black people like they're, they're an object of some kind. How could someone say that they are helping a group of people when he doesn't have any idea what these people are? I mean, it, it's, it's just nonsensical. I don't, and I don't, I don't know the stats uh, in general, but like, do you know what percent of black people vote compared to like other ethnicities? When we vote, we win elections. In 2008, we voted at a higher level than whites for the first time in history. Guess what? We elect a black president. Mm. Same thing in 2012. 
So the, the, the question we have as a community, a black community, is that's one agency that we need to do. How do we actually help uh, beyond awareness? Because it, it often becomes confusing how to be a part of the change and support yeah. it. Well, here's what I, I say. First of all, let's start in your own home. Follow me? Uh, I mean, the big problem in America, that America is so segregated that white people never run into contact with black people and vice versa, unless they're under different circumstances. Okay? That's the first thing. In your corporations, particularly, in your foundations, look at how much you're doing in the black community. Look how many people of color uh, black females, black males, Latinos, Asians, which is not a problem. We figured that one out. And white females. And we finally figured that one out. But those other three groups, we still haven't figured out. We haven't figured out that black people can go up and down the ladder. And the reason that is so disheartening, because at Xerox, as late as 1991, we, we had extraordinary penetration. And we gave most of it back. I mean, the first black CEO of a corp, uh, female was from Xerox. It came out of the Xerox black employees. We're the ones that told Xerox, you need to get out of South Africa. You need to hire, uh, bring in a black uh, board member, Vernon Jordan. And then Vernon Jordan then told them that they have to have a black CEO. That's how it works. We're not, I mean, why do we have to recreate stuff? I mean, if I go to Apple or Google or Facebook and just ask them, What's your population? Less than two to three percent. Yes, it's good. You know, what is your foundation doing to help black foundations and nonprofits? I mean, where's your responsibility in that? I mean, you know, I mean, like it's it's just it's unconscionable. You know, America is a banquet, and most black people are starving to death. Mm. That's what's happening in this country right now. You know, it's better to be rich and guilty than being poor and innocent in this country. That's what we're dealing with every day. And the people that mean good, and I'm not saying, I, my, my common saying is all white people aren't racist, but all white people are privileged. And you got to come out of that, that ivory tower. And, 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 and what I love about what's going on, the young people and not so young are on the streets together for the first time. That's a big difference from 1991, 92 that white people and I see some Asians and women and all are out together because at the end of the day, the social media has democratized this process. You follow me? For the first time. But corporate America has still, I don't think, got that. We only have, I think, one, two, three, four CEOs in the Fortune 500, period. And let me tell you what, if they're not with one of their white colleagues, so they'll always have somebody white around them because if they go in a place that does not have, that does not know them or their, their advanced people don't let them know, they'll have problems too. And they'll tell you that. So just to transition a little bit and um, in terms of like um, art, I want to get a little bit into sure, two parts. Yeah. One is um, how does the change keep happening? Like, and when I say change, it's up to also 
white people's everybody yeah everywhere i mean it's it's responsibility and then and then the second part is um i'd also love to highlight more black artists in general yeah the kinsey collection let me tell you right now has the biggest spread of i mean you guys have stuff over the last what 300 years 425 years 425 years so that is like an enormous spread do you guys also rep talent or artists or showcase new talent well what we try to do is help uh mid-career artists and we've done this all our lives in terms of uh uh, we've done 31 cities uh with the kinsey collection and every city we go in we always try to feature uh local artists and try to bring them into our collection uh so that they can get the exposure because you know Art is one of these things that you need three things for it to be successful. You need someone to produce it, someone to buy it, and then someplace to show it. Mm -hmm. Follow me? Our artists are producing stuff all the time. It's hard to get some of this stuff sold, and it's almost impossible to get Black uh, shows in museums. And that's that's another problem we got. You know, uh, our museum world is, 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 is very elite, elitism. Uh, to a fault sometimes because they still have this European flavor that if it comes from Europe, it must we must print it. You follow me? When in fact, the African-American experience in art uh, starts in 1865. Uh, and if you can put those, those I, I, I'll just take you through those. But in 1865, we have a, a piece, 1865, Robert Scott Duncanson from Cincinnati. And if you ever go to Cincinnati, there is in the Taft, uh, the Taft House, they mm-hmm. are called the, the Duncanson uh, murals. And you go in there and this whole house owned by the Taft family was done by this black man, Robert Scott Duncanson. In 1865, we have one of his earlier pieces. But also Queen Elizabeth has a piece in Buckingham Palace. The Queen of Norway has one of his pieces. You never heard of it. He had to leave America and go to Paris and England and became really famous there because of Jim Crow and slavery here in the United States. Uh, Edward Mitchell Bannister in 1876 won the highest award for art Mm. in this country. You never heard of it. You follow me? I mean, I can go on and on and on about the, the contributions of African-Americans. I mean, if you go into the Harlem Renaissance, all the writers and poets and artists and musicians all came out of the black story, all the, the African-American yeah. experience. And that experience is both pain and expression. And we've been able to synthesize that and keep our sanity, you yeah. know, while we're doing it. But it's, it's, it's just not easy, you know? And let me just say this for our audience. I think our police department has improved dramatically since 1992. I mean, no question about it. The the restraint and professionalism that I saw of our 9,000 officers made me proud. That was Mm -hmm. not true in 1992. We lost 54 lives. And how was it in 1992 compared to now? Most of them police shootings. Got it. So 54 police officers killed no, no, no. During those riots. Right, 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 right. I got you. Okay, versus this time zero. We have five officers hurt, and they should not have been hurt. But that's a far cry from the 
the issues that we had in 1992. So I think we, and, and I'm big on uh, looking at progress because if you keep saying you've never had any progress, people give up on you. You follow me? So you got to keep, you got to be able to show that this thing is progressing. And I think we are making, but what's happening on the streets now with Black Lives Matter is extraordinarily good for this country and this world. I mean, I think it's beautiful what you've done, what you've done as a family. Um, you know, I'm really grateful for you coming on, always evolving with me. Well, um, I've enjoyed you. I tell you, this has been fun. I mean, your audience, what I'd like you to do is go on thekinsicollection.com and you'll see a unbelievable amount of videos and material and art and historical documents. And uh, our foundation is the Bernard and Shirley Kinsey Foundation for Arts and Education. And that's what the Kinsey Collection does better than any, anyone. We have hundreds of stories of African-American people doing extraordinary things and the stories being buried. And what we've done is dug them out of the grave. I tell people when you go with the, the myth of absence, it's like going into a graveyard with no great, no headstones. That's what African-American history has, has, has come in, in our country. And what the Kinsey Collection is trying to do is to put names on those headstones of all of the people that have contributed so much that nobody knows about. Well, Bernard, look, we could have spent a few more hours talking. And Thank once you. once we're able to do it in person, let's I'd love to go through your, you know, like film and go through the collections and take a look. You know, that's where my style, I know we're a bit, uh, you can't yes, do that with yeah. everything going on right now. But I'm uh, I'm drooling at just immersing myself in, in what you've built. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Bernard Kinsey, everyone. Can I give him one little jewel before I go? Give one us more? one more jewel. Okay. okay. You needed three things for a successful life. You need something to do, someone to love, and something to look forward to. That's how Shirley and I have structured our lives around those three principles. And I something just to do. Someone to love. Someone to love. And something to look forward to. And something to look forward to. And a Buddhist monk shared that with me in 1980 in Kathmandu, Nepal. Okay? I love it. And it changed my life. Hmm. Because it's so simple, it's hard. And when you wrestle with it, and as you wrestle with it, You'll wrestle one down and then you'll wrestle it, you know. But I wanted to share that with your audience because I think it is it is a how-to on having the kind of life that we all strive for and want to have for us and our family. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bernard. Uh, everyone, click to subscribe, download. Let me know what you thought of today's episode with Bernard Kinsey and keep evolving.